HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. We've been making cheese in Wisconsin since before we were even a state, which may be one reason why we win so many awards for it. It's what happens when a whole state dreams in cheese. Find your next favorite cheese at wisconsincheese.com. Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, on this journey through culinary history. And I have a trivia question for you all today. What food has a 6,000-year-old history that shaped the basis of what we eat today? Well, I guess if you're smart people, you guessed it already. And that would be bread. More specifically, sourdough bread. And I'm sure many of you are familiar with sourdough cultures, maybe either one that you made yourself or one that a friend, (laughs) question mark, or a neighbor passes on to you. I say question mark because if any of you have ever gotten a gift of a sourdough starter, uh, you know that you have to keep feeding it. It becomes like somebody just gave you a pet that you have to walk three times a day. Um, Not that bad, though. And it's a wonderful thing. So I'm sure that you you know about sourdough cultures if you have ever been given a starter or made one yourself. But bread baking, interestingly enough, became a bit of a craze with some people during the COVID quarantine period. I mean, on Instagram, it's, I think I, all I saw for about a month or two were postings of people, you know, baking their sourdough loaves and showing pictures of how wonderful they were. Um, and, of course, I myself had to... Uh, dapple in the bit, the bit of sourdough dough for a while. And my guest today, Eric Pallant, was bitten by the sourdough baking craze about 30 years ago. It wasn't just recent. And lucky for us, he was, because he turned his quest to find the origins of his sourdough starter into an informative as well as entertaining book. There's a little bit of everything in this book, and it's called Sourdough Culture. A History of Bread Making from Ancient to Modern Bakers, published by Agate Surrey. Eric Pallant is a serious amateur baker. That's sort of like being kind of a almost professional baker, but not a professional baker, he's an amateur baker. He's a two-time Fulbright Scholar, award-winning professor, and the Christine Scott Nelson Endowed Professor of Environmental Science and Sustainability at Allegheny College. 
He's acknowledged for his skill in weaving research narratives into compelling stories for TED-like talks, the Grisham Lecture Series in London, Bread Symposia, podcasts and articles for magazines such as Gastronomica, Sierra, and Science. He lives in Meadville, Pennsylvania, with his wife, a cat, and three very active sourdough starters. Welcome, Eric. Linda, thank you. I love that introduction about Oh, you've been given a starter and now you have to deal with it. <laughs> well, I, as you know, I, you know, you can tell from that that, yes, indeed, I have been given gifts. And, ah, you know, I was given a starter back, well, back in when oh, the whole bake your bread at home post around the 70s, you know, and then mm-hmm. it was a little later than that when, when a friend, I already had a starter and a friend in my new community, they thought, well, to be part of this community, you have to have the starter. It had some history to it. I don't remember what I had it for. I don't remember how long. And I have no idea what happened to it. I killed it. But yeah, yeah. bad no, me. It, it's a living thing and you got a deal. You have to feed it and water it and care for it. And yeah, it's a, right. it's a family pet. Well, how did you get involved in all this sourdough bread and, and sourdough cultures? So, so, um, well, I like eating, so that's the first thing. Um, and, and I like eating like all different kinds of foods. I think it's a great way to learn about the world and, and people. And um, the very opening scene of, of the book is, is how I came to, to this one of my sourdough starters. And, and really the first one that, that got me going is, is a sourdough starter that I was at a picnic. Um, I'm not a particularly outgoing person and was trying to make conversation and said something like, oh, this bread is wonderful. And the, the host said, oh, you know, I just made it from sourdough. And I had been making bread you know, off and on with commercial yeast. And she said, would you like some starter? And I said, sure. And then I took that starter home and um, learned to live with it uh, like a new family member. And it learned to live with me. And I, I made a lot of breads that were not very good, and I learned by trial and error. And this is you know, pre Google, pre pre being able to right. look things up. And um, so this is the late 1980s, and 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 uh, I guess I'll go on. But you know, 20 years later, I have I have two teenage kids who can eat, you know, can put away a lot of bread. And and one day I'm making like loaves of bread for the family, and and thinking this sourdough I've been feeding and caring for is older than my kids. Huh. Or late teenagers, and it's older than like this cell phone and the the cell phone before that, and it's older than my refrigerator and my dishwasher, and like how old is it? And um, so that started a, a, a sort of a quest. I had the courage. I called the people who invited me to the very original picnic. I hadn't talked to them in twenty years, and said, "I don't know if you remember me, but but we had this picnic, and you gave me this. Oh, we remember the picnic. We remember the starter. They remembered the bread they made." And I said, do you know where that starter came from? And they told me, oh, yes, it came from Douglas Steeples, and it came from his grandmother. And like, oh, my goodness, now this starter is not just 20 years old, and I've kept it alive, but but it, it may be very old. And now comes the search for how old is this starter? It turns out as far back as I can push the date of this particular starter is the uh, Cripple Creek Gold Rush in Cripple Creek, Colorado, of 1893. So it, you know, it's 125 years. Like nobody's forgotten. Like like Linda, you were saying, you know, just sort of lost it or 
killed it or let it get moldy or something. So somebody right. has passed it along for, for a century. Like what else in America is, is, is that widespread? Or, or what else does any of us own that's that old and alive? Yeah. I mean, it's a cult, you know, that's the only thing I can equate it to, you know, those who, who cherish their cultures and pass them on to other people, they do it with, you know, with, with such concern and, and instructions and. Yeah. And history and the story, right. You don't just get a story. You get the story that comes with the starter, which you may or may not remember, but, but (laughs) it becomes your own story as, as I think history should. Right. Well, let's rewind a little bit for our listeners and first, Tell them, I'm, I'm assuming that anyone interested in this program already kind of knows what sourdough bread is or sourdough cultures. But, you know, we have some, might have some new listeners that aren't. Uh, so explain to us exactly what is a sourdough culture. Okay. So a, a sourdough culture is, let me back up. So we are surrounded, all of us, uh, the atmosphere around us and all the surfaces around us are coated and covered and raining in microscopic organisms, um, some of which we know a little bit too well as a virus that's ruined all of our lives. But um, among the other invisible organisms are yeast, um, which are ubiquitous and everywhere, and bacteria, which are even more so. And so if you put out uh, flour and water um, and wait three days, a little bit less if it's warm and humid out, and a little bit longer if it's uh, cold and dry in your house, but you wait three days about approximately, it will start to bubble. And that's because a a, a whole ecosystem, a whole menagerie of wild yeast and wild bacteria will have settled in your, settled on your, your flour and water and will start to grow. And they're growing by consuming, actually pre-digesting that flour and water. Um, And yeast, uh, as anybody who has ever baked knows, will create bubbles of carbon dioxide that will start to appear on that surface. And so a a sourdough culture is simply a collection of wild yeast and bacteria. And by comparison, in the really the last century or so, last 100, 150 years, what we've done is we've picked one species of yeast. Saccharomyces cerevisiae is the species. Um, and really gone to work on it, you know, genetically managed it, programmed it, selected the one that's the strongest, the most powerful, the most vigorous of all the yeast that might be floating around in the air. It's so strong and powerful that when you buy a package of Red Star or Fleischmann's yeast and dump it into your flour and water at home, it will make that bread rise in an hour, right? right. And so much so you have to actually punch it. Like what other food do you have to punch before you can eat it? Um, <laughs> And as opposed to wild cultures, which are sort of take their time and, and provide flavors and, and stories. And, you know, to make a sourdough bread really takes two or three days. I mean, it's 15 minutes of work, but spread over two or three days, whereas make a yeast bread, which is the same phenomenon as sourdough. But, we, but it's, I think of it as like agriculture. It's the difference between old-fashioned agriculture where you grew 10 different crops and had four different animals all on the farm. And now you have a monoculture of just corn, 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 corn. Um, that's yeast, 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 yeast. And so uh, that, that's how I compare the two. Sourdough culture is this, uh, you don't really know what's inside. It's some bacteria and some yeast, and they're doing their thing and providing flavors. Um, and you need to care for them and feed them. And you can, you're, because you're raising new populations, pull out a handful or a cupful and 
either save it for the next bake, which is what those of us who use sourdough do. We save it for the next bake. And then if we're feeling a little bit um, either friendly or not so friendly, we give a cup to our friends and say, here you go. (laughs) Um, How important is it to, you know, I, I, I read something towards the end of the book that went, uh, this aha moment that, you know, I thought that I was always wanted to gather all those yeasts in the air and put, make sure my kitchen was pretty ripe, you know, when I um, was uh, making a new starter. But then I read that it's really all comes from the flour and the yeast comes from the flour. So how, how important is it um, to use a whole grain flour or an organic flour? What about the type of flour you use? Yeah. So, so I, I, I love that question because, all right, so, so where do all these yeast and bacteria come from? And if uh, there's pretty good evidence now that for, if you start with whole meal, whole grain flour, whole wheat flour, that's where the yeast is coming from. And even, and we know that because the, the species of yeast that you find in a bag of King Arthur flour are the same species of yeast if you go out to a field and um, take a brush of a head of wheat and um, put it on a Petri dish, you're going to get the same species of yeast. And, and those, um, th- those yeasts must be traveling all the way through the mill and uh, from the grain to the flour to your kitchen. Mm-hmm. Um, the bacteria, on the other hand, are probably coming from your kitchen, from your windowsill, from your hands, um, you know, your climate. What nobody really knows, though, is if they're the first ones there, are they the same ones that are going to be there in two months or two years? Mm-hmm. Because new bacteria are going to arrive and new yeast are going to arrive. And the only way to to really test that would be to run, think about how many experiments you'd have to run, how many sourdough starters you'd have to start with identical starting conditions. We all use the same flour. We all use the same sterilized water. We all use the same sterilized glassware, but we're going to do this experiment in 50, that's different, not going to happen. Right? 50 different kitchens <laughs> or, and then measure the species development over the course of weeks and months and years. Um, so there's still a fair amount of mystery involved you know every day and every year i'm seeing new research coming out about this but uh i i i sort of hope we don't ever really know you know the mystery of sourdough um i I think is it's uh is its real joy yeah take the fun out of it you know it's fun to fun to watch the bubbles rise and exactly and not one day why does it rise one day what why is it more bubbly than on another day you know okay you do know But go ahead, enlighten us. <laughs> yeah. Um, you can see I'm stumbling. If I did know, right, I'd be a professional, not just a serious amateur baker. You know, why some days it's, it, it's like, oh, man, this is a big, it is going right from my oven to Instagram. And why, why some days it's like, okay, if I can keep my Instagram looking really sharp, this one is never going to show up anyplace. And it feels like I did the same things. Um, and so that, that I think that's another reason why, sort of in very recent history, yeast is prevalent, right? It's very predictable. You know, you mm-hmm. can follow a recipe with yeast and know that in exactly one hour, you're going to need to punch it down. And exactly 45 minutes after that, the, the, thing, the dough will have risen and, uh, you know, exactly double in size and it's time to bake. Whereas uh, to be a sourdough baker for 6,000 years, you had to be an artisan. You had to sort of grow up in a guild and 
learn the craft from masters and spend years and years learning to speak dough, you know, to, to yeah. converse with your dough. To, to if you watch really great bakers, right, there's knowledge in their hands and in their eyes and they just, they can see and they can sense and they can feel, they can't even explain it. Um, but they've learned to communicate with their dough in ways that sort of mechanized bread and, 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 and yeast driven bread is not really quite the same, mm. same beast. Well, now we've, each of us have thrown out the 6,000 year, uh, phrase. Yeah. So when, how, do, how, I mean, I, I've done several shows on bread and, and talked about kind of generally about some of the history knowing well you know back in the fertile crescent long ago but what what do we really know i mean how long what's the first evidence of bread baking well i you know i really hand it to archaeologists i mean uh who who have the capacity to to look at a couple of remnant seeds you know in a in, in a pile of soil that's thousands of years old and figure out that there's a story to tell here. And, and my best reading of what archaeologists are, are telling us is that, and they keep pushing the date back, is, which, which is really terrific, right? Which is that yeah. the oldest breads you know, used to be 6,000 years. Now they're maybe 10,000, maybe 15,000 years. And it, so partly we have to decide what, when do we call this bread? So we, we know that uh, 15,000 years ago, we have hunters and gatherers who are picking seeds, and, and they're picking seeds from a whole variety of species of, of plants. And, and they're, they're probably, uh, and we also know that they're, they're, they're mashing these seeds uh, because we can find now with scanning electron microscopes, starch crystals on the, the heads of the rock that was used to pound and on the base of the rock that it was upon which it was being pounded, that, 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 that they're, they're making a kind of rudimentary flower. Uh, it's a coarse flower and it's got maybe 25 species of plants that are in here. And, and again, we're talking 15,000 years ago. And the speculation is that early on, at best, they're making porridges at it, right? You, you, nobody eats directly, just eats raw flour. Um, so you're putting some water on it, and and maybe you're heating it, and maybe you're not. And 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 now what we're going to see over the next between twelve thousand years ago and six thousand years ago it is is in some places, in many places, and around the same time, some of those porridges are going to start to bubble. Right, if you're in the fertile crescent, and that porridge sitting out there for a day, the yeast and the bacteria they're going to go to work. Um, it's warm. It's it's really perfect conditions for growing microscopic organisms, that some of those things are going to bubble. And again, the archaeologists can see that, uh, ooh, there's a flat stone that's got burn marks on one side of it. And some of these starch crystals are on top. And so we can really start to speculate that there are flatbreads being made, that you're taking some of this dough, putting it on a very hot stone and making pita which is not uncommon in the Middle East, right, in the fertile right. crescents. And now, at around the same time, archaeologists are seeing that there's preferences in the seed collection, that, that, that wheat is a really preferred grain in the fertile crescent, and that wheat, um, it produces the most energy and the most uh, 
carbohydrates for each unit of grain. And this, this to me is just fascinating what it would take for early civilizations to take the biggest, juiciest seeds and not eat them, but to have the wherewithal to plant it and, and save it for a future generation, like to put this in the ground and say, we're going to, we, we have enough knowledge to know that this seed is good. It's going to make a better plant for next time. And if we put it in the ground and grow it ourselves, we don't have to walk five miles to go find these seeds. They're going to be in the backyard. And, and sort of that's the beginning of agriculture is that domestication of seeds. And the archaeologists, again, can say, boy, within 25 years, you can see the distinction between a domesticated wheat seed or barley seed or oat seed or something like this and its wild parent. Hmm. And, and so, again, around six, between six and eight and 10,000 years ago, we're seeing the domestication of the right seeds. And then it turns out wheat is the one of all the grasses you could collect the seeds from that has the most substantial amount of gluten in it. And so when that thing starts to bubble, it will rise. Um, so, so we think that it was a leavened bread that was so, even made that, that long ago? Again, probably by accident, mm -hmm. right? Uh, you know, it, 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 it's, it's, uh, you've made the porridge and for whatever reason, you didn't get to cooking it into porridge that day, right? You've got six kids. The, the oldest one is complaining that her friends won't talk to her anymore. The next one is um, really wants to go out and play. The one after that just cut her knee. The one after that is just whining, right? And you're the mom and you're making the food and you've been collecting. You're just like, I can't get to this today and tomorrow you take that thing that's now bubbled for two days and has risen to twice it's a normal height and you say screw it i'm going to throw it in the oven pow you know, like it's not the oven but you throw it in the fire and any baker who's done this right because of that gluten which will self-form we now call that auto-leasing but but the gluten network will form it will hold those bubbles in and you get oven spring just from the heat of the heat of the heat of the fire and this thing comes out and it's lighter and tastier and really wonderful compared to what we were eating is just porridge every day. And like the kids are saying, I'm making this up, right? Nobody really knows. It. Right. Totally inventing and, they this, say, but... and, they, and they say, do it again, mom. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. They say, this is wonderful, mom. Can you do it again? And then they tell the neighbor kids who are like, you know, you got to try this. And now the neighbor, neighbor's mom, Lisa, what's your recipe? Um, so that, I mean, we don't really know uh, how it starts, but it, but it is some variation of that, of, of, a, of a porridge that gets away, that ferments, that is cooked at, at, in some way um, and tastes good enough and better enough that it's worth trying to remember how you made it and doing it again. All right. Well, so we knew what we know um, from evidence that, there was a lot of wheat, as you say, and domesticated wheat for millennia in, in the Egypt, in the Egyptian empire. Um, then the Greeks come along. Right. What happened? So the, the, so we've got, let, let's back up just a second, right? And so oh, sure. It's not just like the Egyptians are doing it. The Egyptians are going to feed thousands, tens of thousands of people on bread and beer um, enough so that they have grown enough calories with this wheat to feed enough people to build some pyramids, okay, which is no small feat, which is okay. to support a population of that size 
um, takes a really substantial kind of agricultural production. So I, I like to think of as wheat as as being the, the wheat and probably sourdough bread. And let me just talk about that for a minute. Is the foundation now of what's going to become an Egyptian dynasty that lasts for thousands of years? Mm-hmm. Um, and 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 here uh, um, you're a food historian. There's there's a there's a long standing debate about which comes first, beer or bread. And uh, again, this I referred to the particular yeast Saccharomyces cerevisiae, which is this one species, is the identical species in both making bread and making beer. And so <clears throat> it. It is a yeast. It makes bubbles. If you have a very liquid, liquidy version of it with, say, malted barley, you're going to get beer. And if you have a much thicker version of it with sort of a wheat paste, you're going to get bread. But it, they're really very much the same recipe in the same mm. thing. Yeah. No, you're right about the that the, it is you know it provided sustenance for for all that work. I mean, we do know. Nutritional anthropologists know that, you know, what, how many calories it took for right. a lot of those uh, pyramid builders, but we don't need to go into that right now, but, we, but they had to eat a lot of bread. Well, the simple way to look at the equation is you had to produce more calories than you were consuming right? Right. <laughs> uh, to keep, to keep, you know, 20,000 workers, you know, schlepping stones from one place to another and putting, them, right. up on, uh, putting them up on pedestals. So, so that, that's no small achievement to, to do that for thousands of years. And, and, um, you know, I, I, I ultimately, you know, Alexander the Great and the Greeks, uh, sort of subsume Egyptian, uh, civilizations and, and bread continues to be a, a significant part of, of, Greek culture and Greek history, but it's a little trickier. And there, there's a whole, I mean, it's just really wonderful that the great philosophers of, of Greek history make a point, if you're looking for it, of saying that uh, in Greece, um, that they, at the time of the sort of the greatest height of the Greek empire, there was a terrible erosion problem. You have very steep islands, very steep mountains. Um, Lots of, of uses for wood and for uh, grazing for sheep and all this. And, you know, Plato says, you know, we're looking at the skeletons of our islands, just the bones, the white bones sticking out because the topsoil is all run away. And uh, it's a very difficult way to grow bread and, and mm-hmm. there's sort of a limit to how long the Greek civilization is going to survive um, uh, unless it's taking wheat from the Nile River basin um, and and if you want to move along it's really the roman empire that figures out the, the solution to that and they did it obviously quite well i mean okay. uh, that and also their their knack for uh, uh trading navigational skills and you know, getting exactly, things right. imported, they, right? they have the same climate as greece and the same topography as greece and not much in the way of topsoil but they're brilliant as you just said at uh sort of conquering places that do grow wheat and yeah. importing that wheat, which is no mean feat, right? At the, at the thousands of tons, uh, uh, you know, just thousands of ships every year heading across the Mediterranean from North Africa, from the Eastern Mediterranean to, to Rome to, to prepare the bread that's going to keep the masses uh, full. <laughs> and, and the Roman Empire, they, the emperors were brilliant in that too, is they knew how to keep the people happy. 
I mean, yeah, it's they, just they fed them. Right? They fed well. It's it's you know, as as juvenile, the 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 philosopher of his day mm-hmm. said, you know, they're just pleasing the population with bread and circuses. You know, so long as as essentially that there's Sunday afternoon football and pizza to keep people happy, young men. <laughs> aren't going to be revolting because they're sort of just <laughs> right. sitting around eating pizza and beer and watching football. And in ancient Rome, they're, they're going to gladiator events and have free bread. Right. And we just assume that it was leavened bread. Um, and So it, yet finally, I mean, it, Rome is, again, because they're Romans, <laughs> that's the first time we see anybody writing down how they're making their bread. So you know, really, we've gone through three, 4,000 years of history, and we have hieroglyphics, so we know that the Egyptians were making bread. We, we've got their old uh, bread pans, essentially. Mm-hmm. We know they're making bread for that reason. We've got their old ovens and stuff like that. But how they actually did it, whether they were using sourdough to reinfect bread every, you know, every time they were making bread, we just can't say absolutely for certain until the Roman Empire. And then the Roman Empire said basically. It, yeah. Well, we're gonna and we're gonna take a little break right there. We hold everyone in suspense. Okay. Then we'll tell them all about it when we come back after a short break from our sponsor. So, stay tuned. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. There's a reason when you think of Wisconsin, you think cheese. Cheese is a huge part of Wisconsin's history and future. In Wisconsin, the state of cheese, the tradition of cheesemaking excellence began 180 years ago, before Wisconsin was recognized as a state. Immigrants traveled to settle in this lush, green hills of Wisconsin, bringing their cheesemaking traditions with them. These storied skills combined with the freshest milk available created a cheesemaking culture that is uniquely Wisconsin. Wisconsin's 1,200 cheesemakers, many of whom are third and fourth generation, continue to pass on old world traditions while adopting modern innovations in cheesemaking craftsmanship. Find your next favorite cheese at wisconsincheese.com. Hi, we're back and I'm talking with Eric Pallant about sourdough bread and the history of sourdough. Well, which is the history of bread. Okay, so the Roman Empire, okay, starts to do all the baking and the and the shipping back and forth of grains and and having it grown elsewhere or whatever. Uh, but we didn't know for sure. It was written down, right? Until until essentially Pliny the Elder writes mm-hmm. down everything he thinks is worth knowing. <laughs> uh, you know, Pl- Pliny, I guess it's... Well, I don't know. I, I, yeah. I say Pliny, some say Pliny, but... Yeah. <laughs> Let's call the whole thing off. <laughs> the, yeah, right. Uh, um, uh, you know, and and he, he essentially writes down everything he thinks is worth knowing about the world in an encyclopedia of immense proportions. But, but in... One of these books, he, he includes all of the kinds of breads that are being made and how they're being made in Rome at the time, which is one piece of evidence. And then the second piece of evidence that's really irrefutable that that um, we know something about bread is in Pompeii when when uh, Vesuvius goes off, it it buries everything, including including the, him. Ba- 
13 bakeries, <laughs> mid-production mid cycle, uh, in a layer of ash. And so, so the archaeologists, again, have gone back and uncovered those bakeries and found not only the, the ovens and the mills and the, and the countertops where, where things were, were being sold, but they even find some breads that are a little overcooked from, from the local volcano, but um, give us a, even comp- you know, further confirmation about what was being consumed. By uh, by ancient Romans and and if you'll per- permit me, you know w- w- one of the things that I really um, just love is, is that there's strong evidence that, um, that there's really strong evidence that there's a um, there are jelly donuts in, in ancient Rome, <laughs> and I just love the idea that at the end of a day at work you can you can um, you know tie on your sandals and pick up a dozen jelly donuts on the on the way home. Yeah, and and now you have to understand um, that this is, we have to understand that this is several thousand, million, no, thousands years, you know, a few thousand years after all this bread has already been made for a long time. Now they have, you know, they've really, they've got it down to, you know, stores and a science and, and, um, you know, it's not by accident anymore. This is in 77, the year 77, more or less. That, right. um, that Pliny describes it. And he himself was buried under the ash too and, and killed. I know, I know. A wonderful comment from, from Pliny the Younger who talks about his father as being a very serious sleeper who, who, who and snorer, he says about his dad, who probably didn't notice that oh, well, that's, we can only hope, right? Yeah, right. Well, you were talking about there were evidence of jelly donuts, and we knew they were there. There were sweets being baked, leavened sweets being baked, because he described that he he made a description of of pastry makers, those who had the leisure time, because they called it an arts of peace, right? Right. In, right. in peaceful times. So um, it does take a certain amount of wealth, right? Yeah. To to. Uh, pay somebody to make the fabric that's going to have just the right mesh size to let white flour, the endosperm, pass through, but not the coarse bits that only poor people have to eat that you sort of toss aside so that you have this really light flour to which you might add eggs and honey and all of these other things. That That's a real premium, a premium product, but you need a, a, a segregated culture, a, sort of a caste like system that the Romans also perfected. Yeah, um, and, and it's it's just it needs extra kneading, extra leavening, yeah, special exactly. baking time, and yep, temperatures. Yep. I would imagine. I mean, that's that requires time. That could be well spent baking a lot of loaves of bread, and Good so point. it really is just a you know, a peaceful endeavor. Good point. Yeah, um, what. Now we t- you talk keep talking about the the main um, uh, bacteria in the in the yeast that is commercially made. Um, this talk about the the yeast that then came that was formed that commercial yeast that was you know discovered and and reproduced. Um, and is, is it of just like sourdough with lots of different. Uh, yeast species, or is it, they, call, they keep saying you kept writing about single yeast. Yeah, so, so 
before we can get to single yeast, you need to know what's making your bread rise, right? So for, for 6,000 years, um, at, at best, it's, it's, it's magic or a religious experience, which for me, it often is when it does work. Um, but, but we don't really know, right? You, you take this glop, right? This, this messy, bubbly glop and from yesterday's you know, culture, and you throw it into today's mixture of, of flour and water, and the thing grows, it rises, it, it mm-hmm. does something. But nobody, nobody knows what, what that what's causing that or why that's happening until it starts with uh, Anton van Leeuwenhoek, who builds uh, himself a microscope, a very crude but effective microscope, who sees for the first time these these in the 1650s or so that there are <clears throat> little little blobs in that glob. And he calls those little blobs animalcules. He, he, he's not sure if they're animals or molecules. Hmm. Uh, he doesn't know that they're alive or anything else. He just discovers that they're there. And, and then it, it really takes 200 years of successive experiments and scientific analysis to actually finally confirm in the like 1850s, Louis Pasteur puts it all together, finally summarizes all the experiments that preceded him and says, okay, those little little circular things we can see in the microscope are in fact yeast. Yeast really are living organisms. They're not chemicals that they require nutrition and uh, reproduce. They cause fermentation, and as a byproduct of fermentation, there is alcohol and carbon dioxide produced. So it's till 1850 before we even know how that happens. Mm. And um, that in some way sets off a a, a rush for, okay, now we know what what are the organisms that can do it. It's a yeast. Can we produce that yeast exclusively? Right, because that's the thing that's going to make bread rise, and all those other things like bacteria that are also in there just make it sour, which goes out of fashion um, at, at around that time, the eighteen hundreds. Is like people want white bread that's light and fluffy and doesn't taste sour, um, and, and so we we have this rush to develop techniques to produce one species of yeast purified of all of the other species of yeast and purified, uh, remove all of the bacteria that might fall into a batch. And there is a huge rush to, to make that happen. And by essentially the 1870s, uh, we're off and running. Like mm-hmm. everybody can go buy yeast. Uh, well, not everybody, but, but between 1870 and sort of 1910 or 1920, anybody can go buy yeast with which is just this one species and there's nothing else in there contaminating it. And it's going to make your bread rise really nicely. And, and I mean, it's amazing how, how much you can taste the difference. I mean, it really. Well, exactly. Um, and and those flavors are come from all the other species that are in there. It's the difference between, again, a monoculture, um, you know, it, uh, of just a single species of yeast that doesn't provide much in the way of flavor. Um, and, and having all of those other bacteria and yeast that are all putting different flavors into this mass and taking a day or two to let it happen, that really, I don't know, to me is the distinction between 
I, I can say this, I suppose, because I wrote a book about it, but between good <laughs> bread and, and mechanized sort of industrial bread. Right. Well, and then, and, you know, now, of course, the, the craze is definitely for this full-bodied, if you will, this, this right. you know, flavorful bread that tastes like something other than just um, not, styrofoam. Not styrofoam or cardboard, <laughs> right? And, and you know, America in particular went through some rough patches without, we've got to fast forward here, um, you know, colonial America and all that. But, I mean, how, how and when really did sourdough get to America and, and, then, and, and really take off? I mean, we know, I mean, I bought my first loaf of sourdough bread back in the late 60s or 70s. Right. Um, you know, San Francisco sourdough bread. That was the whole thing, right? But yeah. how did that happen? What was going on? So, so I, I'm, I'm so glad this is a history story <laughs> because there is, right, we're going to come out of the, the 1950s, which is uh, uh, sort of a, a, a scientifically engineered decade right where where we're gonna we're gonna create tv dinners and we're gonna create a space capsule uh that that has its own embodied environment and we're gonna compete with the russians to see who who can be the most technologically advanced nation that that there is and um anybody who's for example worked in a building that was built in the 1960s uh the windows don't open like, why should we let the outside world come in when we can control your spaceship better than nature can control your spaceship? And, and, and that sort of uh, becomes a, a stale environment inside and outside that is unsettled by, oppos- that begins in many ways with opposition to the Vietnam War. And, right. and, and, and then you have Black Americans fighting brown and yellow they're not, that's not a good description, but f- fighting people of color in Vietnam and thinking, what are we doing? <laughs> you know, fighting for what we think is democracy in Vietnam when we don't have democratic rights of our own. And they come home and, and, and really ramp up the civil rights era, which leads to the what was then called the Women's Liberation Movement. We have Stonewall and the LGBTQ plus uprisings, um, you know, the Grey Panthers of, of uh, trying to take old people who had been segregated in old age homes out, out of their thing and, and sort of culminates in, in, in Earth Day of like 1971, which is like, wait a minute, the whole planet needs a, a, a makeover. But a, a part of that mo- moment was the recognition that, okay, we were eating space food, right? A TV dinner was something that everything was pre-prepared and, 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 and we were eating freeze-dried food for the first time. And, and Tang was the drink that you were supposed to drink because the astronauts drank it. And part of the whole revolutionary spirit and, and opposition to uh, that stale air of the 50s and 60s was, wait a minute, maybe there we, should, we should reclaim our food. And, and there was what was called in those days a natural food movement, um, which to which you have to ask, okay, so what, what were we eating if we weren't eating natural food, <laughs> right? Unnatural food. Um, and, and so in these refugia, right, you know, sort of hidden away, people were like, for whatever reason, there were a handful of people who were going to try and make sourdough bread, who were still making sourdough bread or were ornery enough to be like, hadn't given up on sourdough bread. 
and and um, that becomes part of the the health food, what was called the health food craze of the late '60s and early '70s, when people started to think like, okay, can we can we if just making bread by yourself at home was a revolutionary act, even if you use yeast, that was a revolutionary act. Right. That you weren't going to buy Wonder Bread now. It and wasn't modern. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so, so San Francisco, the whole thing, you know, the San Francisco movement, eventually, well, more so than that, but eventually then it found its way to, uh, to the tables on the East Coast and in between. And of course, a lot of people throughout the Midwest were probably making, well, they were the ones who were always, you know, in the farmlands and the, in the Great Plains making breads anyway by themselves, but most likely probably using um, commercial yeast. I would sure. Yeah. No question. And then the craze hit and there's no way back, folks. <laughs> so right, right. And, just and go then, to Instagram and look at all the beautiful pictures. <laughs> perfect, right. And then the craze on the craze went in 2020 when we all got locked up inside. Yeah, yeah. And it, you know, because it's something that takes time and patience and we had plenty of time we were low on patience but we had, right. <laughs> we had we had plenty of time and and i like to think too that there was a certain i don't know maybe unconscious this is a way right. of connecting right. with who we are as humans like this is our history um i you know in some way the, the smell of freshly baked bread is is baked into us. Like there's hardly a person right. on the planet who doesn't start to salivate at the, at the, at the, as it first starts to, right. a, a fresh it's, bread it's, comes out of the oven. And um, it, it's a, right. and, a and reaffirmation kind of, a of, of our humanity. Mode too, you know? yeah. We can make it ourselves. Yeah, we exactly. Ourselves. Well, there, uh, I have to tell everyone that about the book, cause I read it and your information is so well, so wonderful, so accurate, so um, and but the stories that you weave throughout this book are are terrific, and there's everything from oh, yeah, drunken fests to prostitutes, and and <laughs> you, you've got it all in there, um, and you have recipes. Everyone, there are recipes in this book. So yes, you get your dose of history, but you also get your dose of a recipe that you can actually bake. And once you learn how to make a sourdough, if you don't have one given to you, <laughs> um, you can make your own starter and follow the recipe and you can make your own bread. And you can get so much more information on Eric Pallant and his sourdough cultures, um, including a map of the bakers around the world using that original Cripple Creek sourdough just think Neil Young, hey, hey, Cripple Creek Fairy. Just, you'll never forget <laughs> it. Um, and it can be found on your website, Eric, right? Which is ericpallant.com. Yes. Yeah, Eric. and that's pretty easy. And that's great. Yeah. I, I thank you so much for writing this book because it is an enjoyable read. It's not a dry statistical study of, you know, of the or scientific you know, rundown of the, of the formulas. It's just a story of people. As you said, it's, it's getting back in touch with, with our origins, you know, with the, with the people. And it really is a, a people story. And I love it. And I love the book. And, and thank you so much for sharing your time with me today, too. And everyone, thank you for listening. This show has been brought to you through Heritage Radio Network, a listener-supported food radio station. 
We're powered by Simplecast.com and available wherever you get your podcasts. Help us keep food radio alive by visiting heritageradionetwork.org and become a member or just show us some love by clicking on the beating heart in the corner to donate. Thanks for listening.